My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Tom Schwartz, a professor of neurology and neurobiology at the Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Schwartz. A pleasure to be here. So could you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided that you wanted to become a scientist? Sure. I grew up in New York City, in the borough of Queens, in the sort of neighborhood where uh, then and now new immigrant families uh, move and buy houses when they can. And uh, I had a terrific education in the New York City public school system. I went to Jamaica High. Unfortunately, it's recently been deemed a failing school, and they've shut it down uh, to build charter schools there. But it was great when I was there. And when did I decide to become a scientist? That's hard to say. You know, my generation, which was growing up in the late 60s, was what they called the Sputnik era. And uh, because the Russians had launched a satellite into space and we were far behind, or so they thought, if you were smart at all, they just put you into an enriched science program. So they never asked me if I wanted to be a, you know, a, a lawyer or a doctor or what. They just threw me into an enriched science uh, curriculum. And probably if they'd asked me, I would have said, oh, you know, I, especially, you know, when I was in, in junior high, I was interested in history and geography and a host of other things like that. I think the uh, defining one of the defining moments came when I went to an explorer science camp run by the, you know, the Boy Scouts for the summer. And in that science camp, uh, we got to do amazing hands-on things, things you would never turn a 14-year-old loose on now. My project was to remove the adrenal glands from rats and then <laughs> measure their blood glucose as it slowly declined because they were lacking their glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids. Kind of savage, huh? <laughs> that, yeah. You know, but to, to, uh, at 14, with like a college student looking over my shoulder, we anesthetized the animals and did surgery, closing them back up and then watching them, you know, slowly lose blood sugar over the next few weeks. I cannot imagine that getting past anybody's, <laughs> uh, you know, animal protocol now. But it was, it was just an amazing thing. And one of the other wonderful things about that summer was that they had a copy of James Watson's book, The Molecular Biology of the Gene. And uh, I started reading that in the spare time over the summer. And even though most of it was over my head, just looking at the charts of, of metabolic pathways and descriptions of of, uh, of DNA synthesis, things like that, I thought, wow. And I'd, I'd always, as a child, imagined that I'd want to be an explorer, you know, somebody who would, you know, go off and discover a new island or the headwaters of a, of a river. And, you know, as you get older, you realize there are not a lot of islands still to discover. <laughs> there are. They must be very, very small. Uh, and so seeing this sort of vast realm inside the cell made me think, wow, this is where you can get that sense of discovery. One can really feel one's, one's exploring there. So that was wonderful. There was also a wonderful summer science program for high school the summer after junior year, uh, where I got to go to Purdue and also work in a lab and do experiments. That was a terrific opportunity, and I hope the NSF is still funding things like that. And I also got to take courses Saturday mornings at Columbia, I think for free, maybe for $60 a semester or something trivial like that, where I could take courses on 
particle physics or protein synthesis pitched for high school students. And that was also a thrill. So I was pretty much hooked by that. And by the time I was applying to college, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to do molecular biology, biochemistry. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, it was hard to, to let go of the med school issue because, you know, my parents, my dad had a great reverence for doctors, would have loved it if I'd gone to medical school. But I was, I was pretty certain I did not want to be treating patients. I did not want to be a physician. I really wanted to be a scientist. Yeah, you were pretty set from early on. All right, so you did your graduate work at Harvard University in Edward Kravitz's lab, who is known, amongst other things, for taking part in the discovery of GABA as a neurotransmitter. And most of that work was done in uh, large part in the lobster. Is that right? Yes, that is. You don't see a lot of lobster papers nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So marine invertebrates like lobsters used to be a much larger component of neuroscience research, uh, but their influences has has waned. And so lobsters are not a model organism. Many younger students and postdocs are used to working with. But you worked with uh, the lobster in your graduate career, where you studied a neuropeptide called. Uh, proctolin and its effect on lobster muscles. So what is proctolin and uh, why did you and your advisor decide to look at its function and why in lobsters? Right. So, you know, you're, you're reactivating my traumatic stress of graduate <laughs> school, but that's, let's that's go part, with it. That's, part, that's part, of the, part of the exercise here. So first things first, proctolin, uh, it comes from the Greek root proctos, which refers to the rectum, and it's a peptide that was purified from the rectum of the cockroach. So if you do your graduate work on that, you know after that everything is going to be a step up. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine going home and telling your grandmother when she asks you what you do and you say, well, I take a peptide that came from the rectum of the cockroach and I put it on a lobster muscle to see what it does. But there was a very good rationale for the project at the time. This is, you know, the calendar pages are flipping back now to uh, the late 70s. So the strength of those invertebrate systems, uh, in the days before there were patch clamp electrodes, and where if you wanted to record, say, synaptic transmission, you had to be able to stick your uh, microelectrode into the cell, was that they had very large cells that could be impaled with microelectrodes. And so neuromuscular junctions either in the vertebrate or the intervertebrate, were one of the very, very few places to record a synapse. It seems ridiculous now, you know, given the, the, the huge amount of data that one can get from CNS synapses. Um, and the lobster neuromuscular junction, unlike the mammalian neuromuscular junction, wasn't just a simple relay uh, with a single excitatory input. It was a synapse where there was actually synaptic integration. It has both an inhibitory and an excitatory input, and so one could study the interplay of those. And at the time, most interestingly, it was also a place that was subject to neuromodulation, where circulating hormones like serotonin affected the strength of the synapse, caused the muscle to contract, and, uh, and therefore, as a way of dealing with what were then completely opaque and mysterious compounds uh, in the central nervous system, one could start to look at what they did in, to a, a real preparation with good quality electrophysiological recordings. So when I started my project, all that we knew was that there was some activity in, in a gland of the lobster called the pericardial organ that when you put it onto the lobster neuromuscular junction made well, if you put it up to the heart, it made the heart beat faster. And people had tested this factor and said, oh, if you degrade it with proteases, 
it will disappear. And so the idea was that this was a place where there was a, a, a neuropeptide being secreted. So I tested that peptide on the neuromuscular junction and found that it also caused a particular muscle to contract. And so then now the idea was that maybe we could purify or identify or study a peptidergic neurotransmitter. And again, you have to wipe out of your mind the hundred neuropeptides or more that are now known in great detail to realize that at the time, very few neuropeptides were known, very few of them could be studied by electrophysiology. So the quest was to find out what it was. And the good news from my part is that at the start of the project, I went through the 10 peptides that you could buy from the Sigma catalog, <laughs> and one of them was proctolin, and it mimicked the effect of the hormone that was in these glands. And so then my, my project became characterizing it. Uh, so I did not have to be the poor sucker who raised kilograms of cockroaches <laughs> in large barrels of, of dog food chow oh, and man. purified from them the bioactive factor, uh, I could just buy it nicely <laughs> purified from a company. So I think the, to a answer sort of a meta question, the fact that those invertebrate systems let you record from cells was enormous. We could stimulate the excitatory nerve selectively, st stimulate the inhibitory axon, record from the postsynaptic cell, measure things like minis and EPSPs that were difficult or impossible to do in the central nervous system. And one of Ed Kravitz's you know, major contributions was showing that invertebrate nervous systems had identified cells, something that everyone takes for granted now. But he by, was the first to fill a cell with a dye and show that if you filled it with a dye called procyon yellow, uh, you could see the arbor of that cell and say, whoa, if I go to this cell and this ganglion and this place every time, I can, it will always be the excitatory input or the inhibitory input to that muscle with a characteristic arbor. And that made a whole lot of things subsequently possible. Yeah, so I was reading a story about, about, that, about that dye and Ed Kravitz, and it, it sounded like he did a similar strategy to you where he just bought all the dyes that he could and just tried <laughs> them one after the other and stumbled upon this one that worked. And, yeah, I, that, uh, I, that sounds right. That yeah. sounds right. And uh, it was probably, it was not the only time in my life that I was lucky <laughs> that proctolin was already purified, but it was one of the few times when the shortcut actually worked. So you went on and did a postdoc with Lily and Yan Jan at UCSF where you studied the regulation and genetics of potassium channels. And potassium channels are found in excitable cells such as nerves and muscles and endocrine cells, but also in many cell types not usually thought of as electrical or excitable, such as immune cells. And many of the differences in these intrinsic electrical properties of these cells are due to differences in the types of potassium channels they express and the regulation of these channels can modulate the behavior of a neuron or a neuronal or a neuronal circuit. So in your postdoc, you were involved in the work which first identified a gene that encoded the potassium channel, a gene called shaker in the fruit fly. So I thought perhaps you could relay the backstory, as it were, as about how you and the others in the Jan Lab got on the trail of shaker and what your part was in its discovery. Sure. That was in a lot of ways a dream project for me because it was one of the times when cloning and molecular biology had really come to the, the fore, but uh, there was no, you know, uh, 
whole genome sequences or anything like that. You couldn't find out what a gene, what a protein looked like just by searching a database. And we knew that potassium channels would be incredibly interesting. The modulation of potassium channels would be important for uh, synaptic plasticity, for learning and memory paradigms like the one that Eric Kandel was studying in Aplesia. And so the chance to actually see what a channel looked like and then to be able to have the tools to say, how is it modulated? How is it regulated? was just tremendous. Now, the groundwork for it had been laid in several labs. First, the mutant had been isolated uh, many years before by David Suzuki, who just looking at flies on a fly pad, back in the days when we always anesthetized them with ether, noticed that the flies shook violently, twitched their legs, twitched their wings, twitched their abdomens. I won't demonstrate that for you. <laughs> Hence the name Shaker. That, and hence the name Shaker. And that uh, suggested that there was some sort of a neurological defect. Subsequently, the Jans, when they took the uh, summer course at Woods Hole, brought some flies from their postdoc in Seymour Benzer's lab to Woods Hole and developed the first preparation where you could actually record from the fly neuromuscular junction and studied synaptic transmission there. And they looked at the neurological phenotype and it made sense, uh, and then they, I should say, continued that afterwards when they were in Seymour's lab, and it looked as if this might be the sort of thing, the sort of phenotype that you would get if the synapses were missing a potassium channel. Subsequent work from, from them and from Chung Fong Wu's lab and others uh, found that there was selectively one type of potassium channel that could be recorded in the Drosophila flight muscles that was an A-type potassium current, and that the other currents in those cells looked more or less normal. So that was as good evidence as one could get that it would be the gene for a potassium channel. Different alleles gave different size reductions in the channel, but until we actually had the gene cloned, which was four years of very difficult and frustrating work, until we actually had it cloned, we couldn't be sure that it really was a potassium channel gene that we were cloning, and that it wasn't something like a, a synthetic enzyme for a particular lipid, and that lipid just happened to have a particular effect on, on this type of potassium channel and not on others. Right, so you wanted to so, purify the protein and express it in a cell and get a potassium current. That's exactly right. That was the proof. Though as soon as we saw the sequence, we said, oh yeah, yeah, this is, this is right. This is what we wanted. But it was four years of, of painstaking cloning before we had that in hand. And uh, it was a wonderful collaboration between Bruce Temple and Diane Papazian and myself, building on work that Larry Salkoff had done before I even got to the lab. And eventually, Les Timpey got involved as well as the electrophysiologist and involved uh, and we, we, we worked as a team. We passed reagents from one person to the next. And without that sort of collaboration, we could never have gotten there before our competitors. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So we're, we're, we're there, there clearly must have been some hot competition. There was some hot competition. And I have to say that was the one part of the project that was no fun at all. Mm -hmm. The thought that if, you know, if I were to get hit by a car, it would set back the cause of science by about three weeks at most because <laughs> our competitors were hot on our, our tail. That was a very discouraging thought. And the idea was not, you know, how beautifully can you do the experiment? How, what exquisite physiology tracings can you get? How perfectly can you have pictures of whatever it is you're trying to observe? It was, 
give me the damn sequence. I want to see the sequence of the channel. Mm -hmm. And we were all racing towards that one goal. And on the other hand, if you were wrong, you knew you someone was gonna someone else was gonna be there to to that's right to correct us. And so uh, there was a very gifted graduate student in Mark Tannaway's lab called Sasha Cam, who happens to be the grandson of Linus Pauling. So there were a lot of good genes flowing (laughs) into his family, and he was a very good graduate student. So he was competing with us, and then eventually we found out that a lab we'd never heard of in Germany, a guy called Olaf Pongs, was also competing with us. And in the end, both labs published a sequence at the same time. They got wind that we were publishing a sequence, and they published a partial sequence that they had, which turned out to be wrong in many regards. But they felt like they had to publish it or lose it, and that was most unfortunate. In retrospect, if they, because there were so many splicing uh, variants of the channel, if they had held off a little longer, the sequence they would have gotten would have almost certainly not been the one that we had, and there would have been enough to go around for everyone. So they didn't get out of that what they deserved from all the hard work that they put in, because uh, in the end it wasn't the right sequence. So that part was tough. It was no fun feeling like we were in a in a race and that no one would care how well we did the experiments or how clever we were in, in cloning that locus. All they'd care about was what's the amino acid sequence. Yeah. So subsequent to its discovery, you went on to demonstrate, as you've alluded to, that there were a variety of splice variant versions of Shaker, and you showed that different splice variants produce uh, different subtypes of channels, and the the distribution of these channels is regulated in a tissue-specific manner um, via this alternative splicing of Shaker. So what were your first clues that Shaker was producing so many different distinct proteins? So uh, also a very good question. We'd been doing northern blobs with the various pieces of genomic DNA that were coming out of the walk. Diane Papazian was doing the walk along the genome. I was looking for transcripts in the area, and Bruce Temple was looking for cDNAs. And the northern blots were just crazy with bands. No matter, as soon as we hit the real shaker locus, there were many, many transcripts there. Just so everyone who's uh, not a molecular biologist can explore you, explain what a northern blot is. Right, so in a, for a northern blot, something that hardly anyone does anymore. You make a probe to the DNA that you're studying and hybridize it to a transfer of a gel that had the RNA from the cell run out on it. And so I would select poly A plus RNA, that is the messenger RNA, run it out on a gel, and then your gene would normally give just a single band, which was the size of the transcript made from it. But because this was alternatively spliced, there were transcripts that raged ranged from 2 kb to 9 kb in size. And then, as we pulled out more and more clones from the cDNA library, it became clear that all the clones had some sequence in common that was sort of the central core of the the protein, but that the parts at the start and the end of the protein that coded for the amino and the carboxy terminus differed between the clones. And this was another stroke of luck, because when Les Timpey then took those clones and expressed them in oocytes, they gave rise to channels that had different biophysical properties. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, there was a huge amount of insights to be gleaned about how, especially inactivation of the channel occurred, because different amino terminals, different carboxy terminals, gave rise to channels with different inactivation properties. So, so this is a bit of a surprise, right? Because you had said earlier that one of the reasons why you were pretty confident that Shaker was a single gene was that it had a very particular uh, physiological 
phenotype in the muscle. It was an A-type, an A-type channel. So were were you confused or surprised that in fact it was giving rise to multiple types? Pleasantly surprised, I would say. I think what it meant in retrospect is that in the muscle, where most of the detailed physiology had come from, there was a fairly uniform ache current that was removed but that in other cells and other parts of the fly, things that were completely inaccessible to our electrophysiology at the start of the project, at least, there would probably have been different electrophysiological properties. And we thought, this is a gold mine. This is what we wanted. There are going to be so many things to do with this channel. We are going to work on this for the rest of our lives. There's 50 years worth of work for each of us to study Where's the channel? How are the channels distributed? What controls the splicing? How do the different biophysical properties arise? What's the gate of the channel? What's the core of the channel? Uh, how is it modulated by phosphorylation or other post-translational modifications? What I hadn't counted on was that probably a hundred labs would write to us for the clones. We'd send it to all of them. And what I thought would take us 50 years to do would in fact get done in two years by 100 labs all working on it. Wow. So ours was immediately the clone of choice for everyone who wanted to know how an ion channel worked. Because unlike the sodium and calcium channels that had already been cloned, uh, those were huge and very difficult to work with. Moreover, they'd been cloned by Shosaku Numa, who was unwilling to give the clones mm. to anybody else whereas we were just giving the clones out to everyone. So that made it much easier for people who wanted to study things like voltage gating and ion channel conductance to work with than any of the, the sodium or calcium channels. So I want to fast forward a little bit. In 2002, your own lab identified a protein called Milton, which is required for transporting mitochondria to the synapse. Could you describe how Milton mediates the transport of mitochondria down the axon and what happens to a neuron in the absence of Milton? This was another case of dumb luck where we did a mutant screen in Drosophila looking for things that would alter how synapses function. And at the time, all I thought about was synaptic vesicle proteins, active zone proteins, synapse formation proteins. And so it took us a long time to figure out the reason the synapses weren't working was because they had no mitochondria in them. So Milton is an adapter protein. That is, it's a protein that sits on the surface of the mitochondrion, and the motor proteins, kinesin and dynine, bind to Milton. So organelles move along microtubule tracks inside cells by having these two motors on them, kinesin to move them forward, which in an axon means away from the cell body towards the synapse, and dynein to move them in the opposite direction. Milton, therefore, is the essential linker that will connect those two motors to a protein called Miro that also is anchored in the membrane of the mitochondrion and has a role in regulating the movement of this complex. It was it turned out to be not at all what we were looking for, but has been a really fascinating uh, thing for me to study and an important part of the lab now. Okay, so I'm imagining you're doing lots of synaptic physiology and, and, and such on, on these knockouts and, and finding no obvious problems. So how did you first notice that mitochondrial transport was messed up? Right. So there were several steps to that. One was that Steve Stowers, the postdoc who had designed the mutant screen, who'd cloned the gene, uh, raised antibodies to it, and immunoprecipitating Milton with these antibodies and seeing by mass spec what proteins bound to it, found kinesin heavy chain as one of the, the major hits. And we said, ah, axonal transport. 
So all I could think about was it must be axonal transport for a synaptic vesicle protein right. or for an active zone protein. And the, the more we looked at the synapses and all the markers that we could see, the less sign we could see of anything missing. So we contacted a lab in Dalhousie, uh, Ian Meinertzagen's lab, who was a great expert in the Drosophila eye. And the phenotype was, was one that we, we found first in photoreceptors. And he had a postdoc in his lab who spent a lot of time looking at electron micrographs of the Milton mutants and counting the synaptic vesicles and looking at the active zones and noticing very tiny things that seemed wrong. And after many weeks of this, said to Ian, you know, I don't know if this is important, but I never see any mitochondria in those terminals. <laughs> and when Ian called me to tell me that, it was one of the very few eureka leap out of the bathroom, you know, bathtub, say, oh my God, that's it. And it's a great example of how we go through science with blinders on, right? I hadn't thought about mitochondria probably since I was in high school. And, uh, and all I could think of was the synaptic vesicles. But in fact, the mitochondria were present in the cell bodies of the photoreceptors. They looked beautiful. They worked because we knew that the, the photoreceptors could still respond to light. But they never left the, the cell body. They couldn't get down the axon to the terminal. And, and that was the moment that the light bulb went on. And it's really uh, pivoted uh, a huge focus of your lab from, from that point on, huh? It has. It has. I have to say, Steve Stowers, who discovered that protein, didn't want to keep working on it because he just wanted to study synaptic plasticity. I tried to talk him out of that. I said, Steve, you went fishing for tuna and a halibut jumped into your boat <laughs> instead. Do not throw it back but he had his heart set on synaptic vesicle proteins and so went on to a different project. But I'm very delighted to be have roughly half my lab now studying the regulation of how mitochondria move. So in 2011, you published uh, a paper where you showed that two Parkinson's-related uh, genes, PINK1 and Parkin, are required for the regulation of mitochondrial movement, distribution, and clearance through the axon. So under normal circumstances, the PINK1 Parkin complex acts to stop mitochondrial movement and quarantine the mitochondrion for later degradation, suggesting that Parkinson's disease might be caused in part by the inability for a neuron to get rid of bad mitochondria. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the function of PINK1 Parkin in more detail and describe uh, what you see in the when you knock out these two proteins? So you summarized the project beautifully. The dominant hypothesis in the field right now comes from Richard Ewell's lab at NIH and Ted Fon's lab in Canada. And the idea is this, that PINK1 and Parkin are part of a pathway by which a cell clears out damaged mitochondria. It's a specialized form of autophagy called mitophagy, that is, eating of mitochondria. And the idea is that mitochondria will, over time, accrue damage that the process of producing ATP is one that is intrinsically prone to giving rise to reactive oxygen species. And with time, those reactive oxygen species are going to damage the mitochondrion. It's also going to damage things around the cell. And if you don't get rid of that mitochondrion, the damage is only going to get worse. And eventually, you're going to have a toxic mitochondrion floating around inside your cell, damaging the cell and potentially killing it. It's a little bit like what happens when power stations or oil wells in the Gulf of Mexico go bad and start uh, polluting the environment that they're in. Hmm. So, so the idea then is that 
when a mitochondrion loses its membrane potential, a sign that it's, it's been damaged and is, beyond, and is now in a dangerous state, that recruits the pink one to the surface of the mitochondrion, stabilizes it there. That brings in the parkin. The parkin then triggers the autophagosomal membranes to come around, surround, and swallow up the mitochondrion. And one of the first targets of that pathway seems to be getting rid of the motor adapter complex by degrading Miro. And stopping the mitochondrion means that it's not going to go through the cell, spreading its toxic byproducts. It also means it's much less likely to fuse with other healthy mitochondria and thereby contaminate them. So how does that relate to Parkinson's disease? Well, the idea then is that in the patients who don't have pink one and Parkin, they don't have this particular pathway for getting rid of damaged mitochondria, and those toxic mitochondria will linger in the cell, and by lingering in the cell will eventually cause it to die. So do the, do the, do the mitochondria, when they are degraded, are they um, sort of moved away from synapses or, or moved to specific spots within the axon? Yes. Well, the, the mitochondria are normally about 60% uh, of them are stationary in the cell, and another 40% are moving backwards and forwards. So in a way, there is always a supply of moving mitochondria that can fill in a hole that was left by any mitochondrion that was cleared out. No one knows quite why they're stationary or what the difference is between those two populations, um, but there are moving mitochondria, which are probably necessary for uh, replacing the mitochondria, turning over the proteins in them and all the rest. So there was a controversy in the field. This is something that I'll, I'll talk about uh, in, my, in my talk, um, as to whether mitochondria, when they're damaged, move back to the cell body, sort of like the elephant's graveyard, to get destroyed there, you know, in the sort of garbage disposal area of the cell, or whether they get degraded in situ. And the fact that we saw the damaged mitochondria stop was in some ways a problem for this hypothesis that they move back to the cell body. The reasons for that hypothesis were, were several fold. One is that there are more lysosomes in cell bodies than there are in the, in the axons and dendrites. But there are lysosomes in the periphery too. So now, by observing those damaged mitochondria for longer periods of time in axons, we can see that they stop in place, they recruit the parkin onto them, they recruit the autophagosomal membranes onto them right there in the axon, and they can even encounter lysosomes there in the axon to get degraded locally. The alternative would be that once the autophagosomal membrane has surrounded the mitochondrion, which I'm illustrating with my hands now, but of course <laughs> I can't see that, uh, that once that autophagosomal membrane has surrounded it, the autophagosome will have motors of its own that could move it back to the cell body. But we're not seeing a lot of that happening. Hmm. Uh, could you give us maybe an intuition for why dopaminergic neurons might be more sensitive to disruption of their mitochondrial transport as opposed to, say, motor neurons? No. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's a question that I'm asked all the time. And I'll tell you my usual answer, which is that I would be embarrassed that I don't have a good answer to that question if there was anyone studying any of the neurodegenerative disorders who did have a good answer to why the particular population was the most vulnerable. So what I can do is I can tell you some of the hypotheses in the field. And one of the most attractive comes from Jim Surmeyer. And 
recording from the vulnerable neurons, the population that is the most vulnerable neurons, because eventually other neurons degenerate as well, but the most vulnerable are in the pars compacta of the substantia nigra. And he found that those cells fire at a very high frequency and that they have a low voltage activated calcium channel so that there is constantly a lot of calcium influx into those cells. So Jim's hypothesis is that that calcium influx is both an extra stress on the mitochondria of that cell, which might make them therefore all the more vulnerable to needing to clear out the mitochondria when the pink one and Parkin are missing, but also it means they're going to be most dependent on having a light of mitochondria because they're going to need those mitochondria to buffer the calcium and to provide the ATP that will be necessary to pump the calcium back out. I find that a very attractive hypothesis. I don't think it can be all of it because after all, cardiac myocytes also have a huge amount of calcium influx and they are not part of the vulnerable population. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a very similar answer that uh, Don Cleveland gave me a couple of weeks ago to why ALS you know, in right. a similar sort of conundrum. It's like, well, motor neurons fire at high rates and et cetera. Right, right. But, but, but the dopaminergic neurons don't die in ALS and the motor neurons don't die. Exactly. So we're clearly still missing a part of the puzzle. That low voltage activated calcium channel may be an important part of it. It may also have to do with the fact that pink one and Parkin are clearly not the only pathway for mitophagy in the cell. The patients live for many decades without symptoms. Their the, other cell types don't fill up with enormous dead mitochondria. So there are other salvage pathways for getting rid of them. And it could just be that the relative abundance of that salvage pathway is a little bit lower in the pars compacta and therefore makes those neurons more, more vulnerable. It may also have to do with the rate of mitochondrial biogenesis and how well the pars compacta can replace the cells, uh, the, the mitochondria that are damaged. All of those things could be a factor. My suspicion is that it's like risk factors for heart disease or cancer. It's not just one thing, but it's, it's all, all of these converging to make that the weak link in our chain. So finally, could you just give us a, a brief preview of what you plan to talk about in your lecture at Stanford? Well, some of it I just told you about. Uh, I will talk about those pathways for clearing mitochondria. But I'm also going to talk about another pathway that regulates mitochondrial movement, and that is the ability of extracellular glucose to regulate how the mitochondria move through an enzyme called O-glucnac transferase that probably you, like, like I, before we stumbled into it, had never heard of. But we think that this pathway is also important for getting the mitochondria where they need to be in the cell. And we suspect, it's a hypothesis that we have yet to test, that maybe this will have something to do with, with uh, another neurodegenerative disorder, which is diabetic neuropathy. That's a huge clinical problem. The patients who have poorly regulated blood glucose are at very high risk for developing a neuropathy, especially of sensory nerves and of sympathetic nerves. And it's one of the most debilitating aspects for the people who are living with it. But really nobody knows in any sort of detail why it is that elevated blood glucose is, is such a bad thing for neurons. Normally, wouldn't we think glucose is a good thing to have around? So that's been part of the motivation for trying to understand why it is that glucose is stopping the movement of mitochondria and then by doing that, setting a, a foundation on which we can ask, does that really have anything to do with diabetic neuropathy or doesn't it? All right. 
Great. So in closing, we have a series of shorter answer questions we like to ask. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, and yourself specifically, what advice would you give yourself? I would say have courage and have confidence. It's too easy to talk yourself into a funk and think, oh, there'll never be a job for me. My project will never work out. Uh, the grants are going to dry up. The NIH will shut down. And you know, like Shakespeare says in, in Julius Caesar, cowards die a thousand deaths and brave men die but once. I, I, I was convinced that I was going to die as a scientist for most of my graduate career, and now I'm uh, as happy as can be. So uh, I, I, I wish I had had the confidence then to just say, write out the bad parts, write out the times when your project doesn't work. It would have made for a lot less stress. So when you pick a lobster to eat, you don't necessarily want to pick the biggest one because it's uh, far harder to cook large lobsters evenly. But I wonder, what are the things people should look for when picking a lobster to study? So cheap is good, and you know, although I have to say lobsters uh, are much less expensive than rats and mice. And I long for the days when I could just send a, you know, a taxi down to the pier to pick up a bunch of lobsters for 5 to $10 compared to the mouse bills that I get now. So uh, it was a great thing. We studied these little legs on the side that nobody wants to eat. <laughs> you cut off one leg to do your physiology experiment and throw the lobster back in the tank. Don't do that with your mice or rats. <laughs> and, and then come back the next day for the next legs. And once all four of the legs were gone, it's yours to eat if you want. It's better, better food than most graduate students eat, I think. Yes. <laughs> so you were amongst the uh, founding members of the molecular and cellular physiology department here at Stanford before you moved your lab to Harvard. So I thought maybe you could share your favorite uh, memory from an MCP retreat or faculty meeting. <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful time. It was like a, a little magical circle. The 10 of us all came at about the same time, uh, got along remarkably well, had very similar interests, and, uh, and enjoyed each other's company enormously. And it was a very sad uh, moment for me to be leaving. I left only because my wife got a job in the Boston area and, and dragged me unwilling across country. But let's see, a great anecdote. Ah, shall I tell it? Sure. There was a faculty meeting once where we were discussing whether or not we should start teaching the cardiac physiology course and taking over control of it. And it was being taught by a lot of, of clinical cardiologists. And we didn't want to have to teach it. I mean, I didn't want to have to teach it. It looked like work, right? <laughs> so uh, Dick Chen, I guess it was several of the, of the, I'm not sure it was even cardiology that was the issue. I, I don't want to do them a disservice. It was one of the other courses. And Dick said, well, you know, it's part of our responsibility. And I said, not really. They teach it. And he said, no, it's physiology department. If it's not taught well, it's a blot on our escutcheon. And I said, you know, I don't think so. I argued for a while that it wasn't a blot on our escutcheon. <laughs> and uh, the conversation went on a while like that. So later in the afternoon, Brian Kabilka comes by my office to talk to me about various things. And he says, oh, you know, by the way, you know, it's one thing I wanted to ask you in his very, you know, quiet, yeah. light way. There's one thing I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, you and, and Dick were using a, a word that I didn't know the meaning of in the, in the faculty meeting. I said, really? I, I don't think so. He said, yeah, you know, I thought I might know, but 
I said, well, what was it? He said, well, you kept talking about a, a blot on the department's escutcheon. And I said, oh, oh, yeah, that's a term from heraldry. It means like the family crest. And uh, he said, and, you know, if you have a blot on it, it means like maybe you were an illegitimate child or had done something bad or something like that. He said, oh, oh, that makes more sense. I said, why? He said, well, it's a medical term, too. I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah, it, it refers to the area covered by pubic hair. <laughs> Ryan, how could you keep a straight face in the faculty meeting thinking we were talking about pubic hair? Uh, I, I love Brian, and that was a very endearing moment. Uh, well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Schwartz. It has been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you when I'm over there. Indeed. It'll indeed. be great to be back at Stanford. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Chen Gua Gu, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Associate Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. <laughs>